for the next three to four weeks. And, and in this series, we're leading up to Easter. Um, in case you're not aware, Easter is, is, is in April. It's coming up. Um, and Easter is a time we celebrate um, the, the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Um, so the message that the series that we're going to be looking at as we look to the cross, I don't want you to miss out if you can, um, you know, in these next four weeks be here. Uh, but we're going to be uh, sharing, we're going to be looking and exploring a message titled um, From Rags to Riches. Rags to Riches. So that would be the series title. Uh, and I hope that you stay with me for the duration of this uh, series and, and that you know and understand what the work of the cross has done for you and I. According to Wikipedia, um, and Wikipedia is, I know it's the people's encyclopedia. Anyone can edit uh, whatever is on Wikip- uh, Wikipedia, but I was, I was assured that um, whoever goes up and edits what's written on Wikipedia, there's a, a number of proofs and evidence they have to give to change any fact that is there. So it is uh, double-checked and it is fact-checked. But according to Wikipedia, uh, the term rags to riches means the following. Rags to riches refers to any situation in which a person rises from poverty to wealth, and in some cases, from absolute obscurity to heights of fame, fortune, and celebrity, sometimes instantly. So that is the formal definition from rags to riches of, you might have heard there's been a song on it, there's been movies on it, uh, but I took this title to apply to the, to the main text, which I'll come to shortly, but we all love a rags to riches story, don't we? We love stories hearing about, uh, you know, people that, you know, came from, from nothing and, and they worked hard, they achieved their goal and they went above and beyond and they were blessed in the things that they did. Um, it encourages us when we hear stories like that because we can identify. We can say that these billionaires and these people that are really wealthy and well off in life, they were once where I was. And so when we hear stories like that, when we read about the, the biographies of these kind of people, it gives us courage to say, hey, if they worked in this place and if they were in this point in life and they are in this place, that means I can also work hard to achieve these things. We love to hear stories of billionaires who once worked as janitors like Jin Suk, uh, Jin Suk and Do, Do Won Chang, uh, who in 1981, this is their story, in 1981, they immigrated from South Korea to Los Angeles in pursuit of success and new opportunities. Uh, penniless and without formal education and speaking broken English, they struggled at first. Originally, going into the coffee business, they soon discovered that it was not going to be their ticket to success. For a few years, Chang worked at a janitor as a janitor, pumped gas and served coffee to make ends meet for him and his family. Everything changed, however, when he made one crucial observation. I noticed in quotation, I noticed that people who drove the nicest cars were all in the garment business. Chang told the LA Times in the 2010 interview. Soon after, he opened a 900 square feet clothing store called Fashion 21. It would go on to become the fast fashion retailer Forever 21. At their peak, their net worth was 5.9 billion as a husband and wife. 
this is one of the stories that we're familiar with. You can read hundreds of stories like this. When you see the billionaires and those who are successful in life, when you see how they got to where they were, you, you, you often hear how they went from rags to riches. This is the concept that I'll be sharing about, but the rags to riches story that I will be sharing in this series is the greatest story of all. It surpasses the story of this couple and every other successful person that is in this world. This rags to riches story that we're going to be exploring is not just for a certain fortunate few that worked hard and applied themselves and saw fruition in their hard work. But this, richest, this rags to riches story that we're going to be learning about is applicable to every single one of you. When we learn in the next few weeks how this story can be true for you and for me. And it can be part of all our stories. So we're going to go now to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. And this will be the main verse that we're going to be uh, using as an anchor for this series. 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. That is the one verse that is packed with golden nuggets that we're going to be learning. It's a truth that we, when we understand and apply in our life, we will live in this work that Jesus came to give us. So I'm going to begin with a bit of passage background and context information. You know, this is one of the main verses that is used by the prosperity gospel proponents or teachers, uh, which, uh, which mainly hold that the will of God for every person that believes is to be wealthy in their finances, to be healthy in their bodies, and to not have any problems going through in life. This verse has been used by many prosperity theology teachers, especially uh, this teaching came out of the U.S. And unfortunately, one of the continents that is affected in a negative way is the continent of Africa. A lot of people have embraced this teaching and have used it and manipulated many people to give towards their ministries. The prosperity gospel, what it emphasizes is that the health, wealth are all part of the atoning work of Christ. And if you are sick in your body, if you don't have any wealth in your, uh, in your finances, they even go as far as to say you are living in sin. Because the will of God for you is to always be wealthy, prosperous, and healthy. I even heard one of, I won't mention his name, but he's a very popular proponent of this teaching. He actually preached about healing and he said, if you have any sort of flu or cough or sneeze, that means you are not believing. See, the, the, the teaching is, is deeply rooted that everything in life as believers in Jesus would mean that we live a well-off life. We'll live the blessed life. And, and to do this effectively, they have to deny many passages in the scriptures. Televangelists will often use this teaching to get people to give to their ministries and that in return, when God when they give to that ministry, in return, God will give them hundredfold. I've heard many of them say, if you do not give this afternoon, you will be cursed in your life. These kind of far-stretched ideas that is uh, proposed by this kind of belief. It is the belief that if you have faith enough, you will have health, wealth, and God's will for you is to always be in that condition. Poverty and sickness is seen as a curse and even sin. 
So what the gospel then becomes, the work of the cross, the work of Jesus becomes, is simply material, and it removes itself from the main thing that Jesus came to deliver us and set us free from. You see, the, the problem with this is that the teaching and the idea of what Jesus came to do for us is simply lost. So many think, when we come to this passage, many think that Paul is referring to material riches because of the context. In chapter 8 and chapter 9 of 2 Corinthians, Paul is speaking about money, material money. He's speaking about giving. He's speaking about giving to the work of God, and he's encouraging the Corinthian church to give and to follow through on what they had previously promised. So many say, you see, he's talking about money, and what Paul is saying is that the work of the cross, he came to deliver us from a life of poverty so that we may be rich. The funny thing is when you explore and you read your actual Bible, you learn to see that what Jesus actually promised his followers and his apostles is that when you follow me, you will be, you'll be persecuted, you will be hated, you will be called all sorts of names, you will be rejected, you will be ostracized, and they, matter of fact, lived a life in, sacrif in sacrifice for the gospel that they spread throughout the land. Paul is encouraging the Corinthian church here to follow through the desire to give by giving. So what he does in chapter 8 of 2 Corinthians is that Paul begins by using the Macedonian churches that was, that was the church of Philippi, the church of Thess Thessalonica, and the church of Berea. He uses the, the example of the Macedonian churches as an example to encourage them to give. You see, the people living in the Macedonian region, they had been given grace to give in the midst of severe trial and extreme poverty. So what we're going to do is we're going to go and explore this verse one by, um, we're going to dissect the verse and look at it properly. The first thing that we see that Paul says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. What is grace? I found a definition, I think, that encompasses the full meaning of the word grace in the biblical text. The word grace is mentioned in hundreds of passages and a definition that encompasses all the various multifaceted meanings of grace is the following. God's undeserved, or you can say unmerited, favor and supernatural enablement and empowerment for salvation and daily sanctification or daily uh, being made into the image and likeness of God, being made holy. So the idea of grace in the Bible is that grace is the gift that God gives to undeserving people to enable them, number one, to believe in him, and number two, it is the work that he does as uh, at, because of who he is being a gracious God, it is the things that he does for people freely. So that is what we refer to when we, see, when we say the grace of God. You see, everything that we have as believers has been given to us as a gift. God's favor or all of his gifts are not earned, but they're rather given as a gift. So everything that Jesus has done for the person that believes it's not because we have ticked a few boxes. It's not because we stopped doing certain things. It is because we simply have received things that has been done for us that, that we do not deserve. 
For example, the Bible tells us that we are saved by grace in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. We are saved by grace through faith. And this is not of ourselves so that no man can boast. This is the gift of God. So our very salvation has come about not because we earned it. The way that we become right with God is not because you did certain things, but it is because of what has been done for you. So we say that salvation is the free gift of God. It is the grace of God. Paul, matter of fact, said, for it is by grace, by the grace of God, I am what I am. When you study the life of Paul, you see that that is a profound statement. Because Paul was a persecutor of the church. He killed all of the believers of Jesus. And yet, when he encountered Christ, he said, now I am saved by the grace of God. I didn't deserve it, but God freely gave me this gift. We know that the Bible teaches us that we endure trials through his grace. When Paul cried out to God and said, take this thorn away from me, God replied, my grace is sufficient for you. So God, God's grace helps us. He enables us to go through trials and hardships in this life and to come out of it strong. The other thing that we see is that God's grace helps us to live for God. In Titus, it says that grace of God has appeared to all men. This grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness and to live self-controlled and upright lives. So even living holy for God, we need the help of God. We need, it's a gift, it's an enablement, it's a power that God gives us that we receive. So what Paul is doing, when you see the context, let's go to verse 1 and 2 of 2 Corinthians chapter 8. This is what Paul said. And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. So he begins from verse 1 saying, I want you to see the enablement, the empowerment that God has given the Macedonian churches. Verse 2, in the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. This is profound. What Paul is saying to the Corinthian church, previously they said, we want to give, we want to, they had a desire to give, to help the people of God that were suffering in Jerusalem, but they never carried through what they desired to do. Often it's like that, isn't it? There's so many things that we desire to do, but the hard thing is following through. But what's profound here, Paul is now highlighting the Macedonian believers to encourage them, look at the fellow brothers that were struggling. This is amazing. He, he tells them, the believers in the Macedonian churches, they gave generously in the midst of severe trial and extreme poverty. The last thing that anyone will think about when you are in extreme poverty and you're struggling to make ends meet, you're living from paycheck to paycheck, you don't know when your next meal is going to come. The last thing that you're going to be thinking about is how you're going to help and enrich other people. The last thing that you're going to be concerned about is how can I give, when, when is the opportunity? When you read it, they were eager, they were looking for opportunities to give. This, Paul tells us, is the grace of God. It's not of themselves, it is supernatural. It is a supernatural understanding that God has given them to enable them to be in such a way. These people had a supernatural empowerment, grace to do this giving in the midst of severe trial. So Paul is appealing for the Corinthians to learn from the example of the Macedonian believers. And then he goes on to say, if that is not enough, 
if the example of your fellow believers in the Macedonian region, if you are not motivated to, to give yourself by looking at them, he then comes to the example of Jesus. And this is where we find our main text in verse number nine. Paul uses the example of what Christ gave up so that we can gain. This is what this whole series will be about. He, he says, if that is not enough, what human beings are doing, remember what Jesus has done for you. So he uses the example of what Jesus has done for them to help them to see that you have been given the greatest gifts of all. What Paul is saying is for them to consider what Jesus did for them. You know his grace. He gave up so much to enrich us. This should be all the, the motivation that we need to help others that are in need. When we always think and understand what has been done for us, we are able to do the things for others. Paul says to them to begin with, you know the grace of God. Church, I want to ask this question. Do we truly know the grace of Jesus? Do we truly know the gifts that God has given us? What he has done for us? The gifts that he's freely given to us? The appeal for Christ's followers to do others to do to others is often in the background of understanding what has been done for you. So when the Bible tells us to forgive other people, we don't forgive other people because that is the virtue that is something right to do. No, the background of the context of what Jesus is saying, he's painting it on something else. He's saying forgive others on the basis of what has been done for you. So our ability to forgive the grievances of our brothers and sisters, whether it is high or low, is dependent on our understanding of the grace and the gift of forgiveness that has been given to us from above. So we cannot truly forgive others when we have not truly understood the gift of forgiveness. We love others and with the instruction to love your neighbor, the greatest commandment, you truly cannot understand, how can I love someone that hates me? How can I love someone from another ethnic background? How can I love someone who, who is truly conspiring evil things against me? How can I truly do what Jesus said of loving those who hate me and loving those who persecute me? Church, it's easy to love those who love you. It's easy to, to love those who have a fan base. It's easy to love those who, who are giving you thumbs up in your Instagram post. It's easy to love those who are loving you back. But the true test of the believer is to love those who don't love you, to love those who are gossiping about you, to love those who are hating you. But how do we do that? When you fully understand that you first were loved by God. When you understand the love of God that came down, you're beginning to have an experience of the true thing. So what I have to give is nothing in comparison to what has been given to me. When we have mercy on others, it is on the background, I hope that you're getting this, it is on the background of the mercy that, you've, that, that, that has been extended to you by, by, by Jesus himself. When, when people are off, often sinning against you, doing something, and you let it go, and all of these things, and you are instructed by God's word to show mercy, the backdrop of that is remember the mercy that has been given to you. How many times have we said, God, forgive me? And we run back to him and he has mercy upon us. How many times have we said, God, I will do this and I will do this. And we go and do the very thing that's, that we said we're not going to do. And God extends mercy upon us. So we have mercy on others when we have received mercy ourselves. You know, my daughter, 
when she hears the word mercy, she always says, Daddy, that's my name. And I told her, yeah, I know that's your name, but she's just excited. Anyway, it's a side note. And here, he's telling them, you give when you understand that you have been given. Look at the Jesus that he gave to you. Look at the gift of Jesus. And when we have an understanding of that, we have an understanding of the smaller, the smaller way of giving to those that are in need, of giving to the work of the gospel. So he said this. Let's go back to that verse. Though he was rich. So he's saying, look to Jesus now. <laughs> Though he was rich. When was Jesus rich? We know that Jesus was born in a poor family. Luke chapter 2, verse 22 to 24. When the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what it said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. Remember that. Now let's go to the passage where Luke gets this very law from, Leviticus chapter 12, verse 6 to 8. This is what the Lord said. When the days of her purification for a son or a daughter are over, this is talking about the mother, she is to bring to the priest at the entrance of the tent of the meeting a year-old lamb for a burnt offering and a young pigeon or a dove for a sin offering. He shall offer them before the Lord to make atonement for her, and then she'll be ceremonially cleaned from the flow of blood. These are the regulations for the woman who gives birth to a boy or a girl. But if she cannot afford a lamb, she is to bring two doves or two pigeons, one for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering. In this way, the priest will make atonement for her and she will be clean. So Luke tells us the offering that they brought forward was, was two pigeons. And here in Leviticus, we, we see that the, the real offering that God wanted them to give was a lamb for the burnt offering and a pigeon for the sin offering. But if they cannot afford it, they cannot afford a lamb, then the woman is to give two pigeons instead of one lamb and one pigeon. Notice how the law stated for one lamb and one pigeon, but if they cannot afford the lamb, then two pigeons. You know when I was reading this, what the Lord showed me? It's not only, it doesn't just show us that, uh, that her, the Jesus' parents were, 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 were not wealthy, were not well off, uh, materially speaking. It doesn't just show us that. When I was just reading this, it just popped out. I'm like, whoa. They couldn't give a lamb because the lamb of the world, the lamb of God was already in the ham. They had the lamb of God that was to take the sins of the world wrapped around in cloth as they presented it to the priest. His time for a burnt sacrifice, for a burnt offering was not yet. So they had to give a substitute. Because later on, this lamb of God is now going to be handed over, not by Mary, but by his father from heaven. If we think even of the life of Jesus on earth, he spent most of the time borrowing things. Jesus was born in a borrowed stable. He taught from a borrowed boat. He rode on a borrowed donkey. His last supper was in a borrowed room. 
and even he was buried in a borrowed tomb. So we see that the rich that Paul was speaking about in 2 Corinthians 8 9 was the state of Jesus before his incarnation. You see, my friends, if you thought that Jesus existed when he came forth into this world, you're highly mistaken because Jesus did not, did not come into existence by man's will, but Jesus was already pre-existent from the beginning of creation. So the state that he was in before the word became flesh is the, the richness that Paul is speaking about. Jesus was rich as God was rich. All glory, all the honor, all the power that belonged to, the God, to God the Father also belonged to God the Son. He was rich in splendor. He was rich in glory. Creation will shout forth of his glory. He owned everything and all things were created by him. Colossians chapter 1 verse 16 reminds us of this. For in him that is in Christ, all Things were created, things in heaven and things on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He was outside of creation. He was before all things came into existence. And listen to one of the last prayers of Jesus on earth. As he was interceding for his soon-to-be followers and disciples, this is one of the last statements of Jesus. Let's go to John chapter 17, verse 5. And now, Father, speaking, he's praying, he's saying, And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. That was the, the, the richness that I had, the richness that I had with you before that I put aside to for the sake of my people, now, God, when I'm accomplishing the mission to which you sent me, glorify me with the glory that I had with you before the world began. This signifies that he pre-existed, that he was pre-existent, and that he was uncreated. And he also shows us the wealth that he lay aside to come down as the word made flesh. Let's keep going to 2 Corinthians 8, 9. Though he was rich... Yet for your sake, he became poor. <laughs> so Jesus was, was not needing anything to add to his glory. He was already all glorious. He didn't need anything else to add to his power. He was already all powerful. There was nothing that Jesus needed for him to come down. The Bible tells us, though he was rich, for our sake, Jesus became poor. Jesus laid aside all that was his, the glory, the honor, and the majesty, and he came down onto the earth for our sake. Friends, not because he had to. We were the reason that the Son of God came down. We were the reason that the Creator was spat on. We were the reason that Jesus was beaten. We were the reasons that Jesus was falsely accused. We were the, re the reason that Jesus was cursed on a tree. We were the reason that Jesus was pierced on the side. We were the reason that Jesus was mocked. All of this he did, the Son of God, the one that was before all things, the one that didn't need anything to add to his glory, he did all this for you. He did all this for me. For our sake, he laid his wealth aside. But for our sake, for our sake. You know, God was perfectly just to destroy humanity through Adam and Eve from the very beginning. Perfectly just. But what we see in the very beginning is that he covered, he covered the sin of man 
with the blood of an animal. So we clothe them with garments of skin. And I don't know about you, but to have a garment of skin, you need to take the blood of an animal. And even in the first murder that existed in the world, the murder of Abel by his brother Cain points to the cross and the work of Jesus Christ. What great love is this? Jesus came down to undeserving people, to wicked, sinful people. There was nothing that Jesus lacked in eternity, but he he left his throne and came down for our sake, and he became poor. What does poor mean by saying that Jesus became poor? How did Jesus become poor? Now, we know that, that Jesus, even though he had, he lived as a normal life that a normal Jewish person would live, that's not what he's referring to when he says to the poverty of Jesus. When Jesus became poor, he became poor in the incarnation. When he put on flesh to his deity, when he put on flesh to his godness, that's when Jesus became poor. Paul puts it like this in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 to 8. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient, even death on a cross. I think this passage beautifully articulates how Jesus became poor. Even though Jesus had all the rights, privileges, and honors of deity, his attitude was to not hold on to those things as his position. But he willingly laid aside all of those things. He didn't cease to be God. He was fully God and fully man at the same time, but he laid aside his privilege and rights as deity for your sake. He became poor. For example, when... When they came to arrest uh, Jesus, remember Peter pulls out his sword and he chops off the ear of the soldier. And what does Jesus rebuke him? He said, don't you realize, Peter, that I've already laid down my rights? If I want, I am God. I am am deity. I I can call legions of angels and they can come and, and destroy this whole camp and this whole army. But you have to understand, I've submitted myself to the Father's will. I've laid aside my privileges and rights as deity. Why? For your sake, for my sake. Jesus surrendered his right completely and was obedient to the Father's will. Jesus didn't stop being God, but he lay aside his riches. He had to put on flesh. He became poor for our sake. Let's quickly go to the next part. So that you, through his poverty, might become Rich, (laughs) this is good news right here. Jesus did all of this to make us rich. This is the greatest rags to riches story that has ever been told in history. For Christ died to make us rich. For those who believe that the riches are material, that's poverty gospel. That is not the prosperity gospel. The true prosperity gospel is that Jesus came to give us riches that no other human being can give us, that no other earthly commodity can provide. Jesus didn't come and become poor to make us millionaires, my friends. His mission and goal of coming down to the earth is not to give us riches a wealthy human being can give you. 
if you think that the work of the cross is, is what another human being can provide for another human being, you're highly mistaken. What Jesus came down, when God came down to the earth, he came down to do something that no other human being can do. He came down from, from his position to do for us what no other person can do. He didn't come to give us riches that a drug dealer can gain for themselves. We've, we've cheapened the gospel. He didn't give us to give us riches that a pimp can accumulate. He didn't come to give us riches that another man can give. If we have watered down the gospel to simply material wealth, then we've missed the true picture and the true work of what Jesus has done. My friends, the cross is not that cheap. He came to give us greater riches than no earthly commodity can buy. This is what this series is going to be all about. Today is simply an introduction. This series is going to be discovering the riches that we have in Christ. What are the things that Jesus came to do that we only have those things through him? No other human being, no pastor, no man of God, no woman of God, no billionaire, millionaire. Only through Jesus, he came to give us things. In the coming weeks, we're going to explore this. And I'm believing many of you will begin to see how wealthy you are. You'll begin to have an understanding of the person that you are in Christ. In 2018, there was a lottery winner that won $877 million. But they didn't claim the prize for five months. The cutoff date was six months, and they just discovered it in time. But in that five months, this person is living, you know, tired, living from day to day. When they, all of the time, when they had possession with them, they had, they had this thing. If they had an understanding, they had this ticket with them all of the time that could make life very comfortable for them. But because they did not discover it, they lived in the condition that they were in. That to paint a picture that I believe even as Christians, we struggle and we labor every single day not knowing the riches that we have in Jesus Christ. We, when we know, when we understand, when we believe in the riches that Christ came to give us, we will not live in poverty, but we will live in wealth. Next week, you don't want to miss out because I'm going to define what God considers as wealth and what the earth considers as wealth. There are many today who do not know Jesus, who are trying to labor and work for something that can only be received as a gift. It saddens my heart when I see believers laboring and toiling and trying to be good and trying to be this and trying to be that, when that thing that they're trying to be can only be claimed as a gift. They can never work enough to earn it. They can never do enough to be it. But they have to believe why. They have to understand why. They have to know what Jesus has done. You can tell someone who is wealthy in the natural, can't you? Oh, sometimes. That, that analogy probably doesn't work sometimes. But mostly you can tell someone who's wealthy. They're not concerned about the things that unwealthy people are concerned about. Like me now, when I go to a restaurant, I, I see the, the menu alongside, I see the price. <laughs> you know, I, my decision is based with the price and the menu. But a wealthy person goes not based on the price and the menu, menu but they just go, what food do I like to eat? 
you can tell someone who's wealthy. In the same way, you can tell a a wealthy person in the spiritual. They talk in a certain way. They think in a certain way. They live in a certain way. My heart for you and I, as we lead up to Easter and we see the cross, to see what Jesus has done, is for you and I, for our eyes to be opened to see the treasures, the wealth that we have in Christ. So I finish it here. Paul began pleading with the Corinthian believers to learn from the, from the grace given to the Macedonian churches. And if that was enough, he appeals to them to see the grace that Christ has given to all of them. As we approach Easter, we are going to see what riches we have in Jesus. When we have understanding of the riches that we have in Christ, we know that we have, what we have is the most precious gift of all. You know, when you see rags to riches stories in the natural, like the story that I told you in the beginning, when we read stories like that, the way they become rich, the way they go from poverty to wealth, from rags to riches, is because they worked really hard in their life to be there. And it kind of motivates us. If they put the work that's needed, then I can put the work that is needed and I can also be there. These stories show us that the results of working hard in the natural is that you'll go from rags to riches. But the rags to riches stories of all believers are not gained by work but by faith. That's what's going to be the difference that you're going to see. That how we go from rags to riches, how we go from poverty to wealth, according to God, not according to the earth, is by believing and not by working. I finish with a statement. Christ went from riches to rags so that you and I might go from rags to riches. Paul said, Paul said, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you through his poverty might become rich. I want you to stand and close your eyes and as we finish off in prayer, I want you to know, I want you to know what Jesus has done for you. We are are made rich through Jesus Christ. Now before you go off and say, hey, I'm going to be a billionaire, Yo-Yo said so, he said I'm going to be rich. I want you to come back next week as we continue to define. But I want you to know this simple thought today. That Jesus gave up everything so that you may gain. You may gain what he can only give you. What you, what you and I need in life are these things that only can come through Christ. And as we're leading up to the cross, as we're leading up to Easter and remembering of the story of what Jesus did, this, my friend, is the very thing that he came to do. We're going to unpack and explore the riches that we have in Christ. And I say in Christ because you cannot get it in Muhammad. You cannot get it in Buddha. You cannot get it in any other person. You can only get these things in Christ. 
And my prayer is that our generation may know, may know for too long we're living in poverty. For too long the enemy has deceived us in thinking that we are nothing, that we, are, that we don't have anything to offer this world, that we don't have any, that we're not worth anything, that we don't have any value. But I want you to know what Jesus has done for you, the price that he paid for you and for me, it cost him everything. It cost him his life. So that you get this thing that we're going to learn in this series. That you understand. I'm praying that God will deliver us from a poverty mentality. Again, I said come next week to, to really get the heart of what I mean by that. I want us to understand that when we know who we are, our identity in Christ, we walk with our head held high. We don't walk, we don't live lives that are defeated but we live victoriously because we know Jesus and we know what he's done for us. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you for your work on the cross. I thank you that as we come and approach Easter, that we're reminded of a story that never gets old, of a story that never gets boring. Lord God, we are existing because of what you did 2,000 or so years ago, Lord Jesus. But you came down. You came down onto the earth, not because you needed anything, not because you had to add anything to who you already were, but you came down onto the earth for our sake. You left your riches. You laid aside your riches for our sake. Lord Jesus, you did it for us, not because we deserved it, not because we were worth it, Lord Jesus, but because of who you are, because of your goodness, because you're a gracious God. You came down and you took my place, you took our place, so that we through you might take advantage of the things that come through you and you alone. And Lord Jesus, help us in this rags to riches story, in this rags to riches uh, series, Lord, to understand what you have done through the cross. That the work of your cross may be, may be revealed to us. That the work of your cross, may our eyes may be opened to see. I come against the enemy who's blinded the minds of unbelievers to not see the gospel of Jesus Christ. In the name of Jesus, I rebuke you, Satan. I rebuke your lies. I rebuke your work. I rebuke your entanglement. I rebuke your lies in the mighty name of Jesus. And Lord, I pray that you would open eyes in this place. Open our hearts. Open our minds. I pray in the mighty name of Jesus that we may see. You see, my friends, this truth that you're going to learn in this series is what the enemy fights for us to not see. That's what Paul says, the God of this world blinds the minds of unbelievers so that they do not see the light of the gospel. He doesn't want you to know who you are. He doesn't want you to know this truth that can set you free. He doesn't want you to live victoriously. He doesn't want you to live free from sin. He doesn't want you to live a life that is honoring and pleasing to God. He doesn't want you to live a life of knowing your true identity. But Lord, I thank you that you are in control. Lord, that your gospel still is the greatest news ever told. Your good news still is the best news that we can ever hear. Above all of the news that we hear that is good in this world, your story of what you have done to redeem your people is the greatest story ever told. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters in this room that you would bless them. Lord, that they may have a revelation and understanding, the wisdom to grasp and take hold of what you have done for them. 
Lord, I pray as we meditate upon this series of the work of the cross, that you may take us deeper in our understanding, that you, make us, you may take us deeper, not just in our understanding, but in our application, that we may be doers of what we know, that when we know our identity, Lord, that we may say no to the things that are whispering in our ears, that are reminding us of who we were, but help us to be reminded of who we are through you, Lord Jesus. Lord, keep them safe. Cover them by your blood. Your blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Cover them by your blood. Cover me by your blood until we meet again next week. Lord, bless the rest of this day we ask in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. 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 Awesome. God bless you.